everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right, Happy New Year, Discovery. It's good to see you. It is good to be back. I hope that you had a, just an excellent Christmas, and I hope that you had an amazing New Year. And I have a question for you. How are you? And it's rhetorical. Just think to yourself, what, what was the first thought that came to your mind when you heard that question? How are you today? I actually have a game for you to play over the next couple weeks, if you would join me in this. And the game is this. When you hear other people ask that question, or when you ask that question of other people, just mentally log, what's their response? And I, I think it's interesting. Uh, I've been playing this game for a couple weeks now, um, even just over a Christmas break. Um, it's amazing to me how many times the answer is good, I'm busy. Those two things go together almost all the time. I'm good, but I'm busy. Sometimes the question is actually front-loaded with the answer. Hey, how you doing? You staying busy? Have you, heard, have you ever heard that? Have you ever asked that before? We, we live in a culture that just loves to be busy. We're, we're busy all the time. And it's remarkable if we actually rewind the tape to go, how did we get here? How did things get this way? when we learn the story, it's phenomenal. And there are so many places where we could jump in to try and understand how did we get so dang busy. One of the places that we can jump in is in the 1960s. And I, I, would, I know that some of us in the room are like, I remember the 60s. Some of you are like, I was there, I just don't remember them. The 60s were a great time. But here's some things that were going on in the 60s. This was about 20 years after World War II. It was starting to feel like at the time that humanity was really emerging out of this dark age of war. The television had begun entering into the homes of everyday people. There was this new invention called a computer that was taking off. The computer programming language BASIC was authored in 1964. And kids, if you're in the room, wrap your head around this. The handheld calculator was invented in 1967. Your grandparents did not grow up with a calculator. We just didn't have the technology that you could add on a, on a piece of plastic. Like, that's, that's bonkers in our world today. Now you can just use your voice. You don't even need the plastic. It's, a, it's amazing. NASA had been competing with Russia for years at this point, and trips to the moon, trips to outer space, thinking about what's beyond the borders of this world. All of that was happening. The show Star Trek began to awaken the imagination in 1966. And here's where it's going to get fun for us, because over the next six weeks, we're diving into this topic of what's up with our world today. There was a Senate hearing in 1967, and there was a subcommittee that came to, this, to the Senate and said, hey, so we're seeing all this technology take off. It's going bonkers. We think like we have dishwashers now. We have all these things that are saving time. So as we're looking ahead into the future, and this again is in 1967, they said by 1985, the average American will only be working 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. <laughs> and this, and, and legit, if you go back and read the transcript, the entire discussion is like, what are we going to do? People are going to have too much leisure time. Like, we're, we're worried that all this technology that we're making is making our life so easy. We, we need to start thinking about this in the 60s. It's amazing when you think about it. How are you? Are you busy? Are you exhausted? Was your first day back to work or to school a peaceful ascent 
back into this place of calling and relationship and connection? Or was it met with a shudder of dread and cold sweats about the so-called to-do list or the speed of the gerbil wheel that you just felt in yourself and outside of yourself firing back up? Or did you just laugh at the basis of the question and think, back to work, work never stopped. There was no break. This new series that we're kicking off this, to start this year is based around a book. Uh, and the point of this book, frankly, is not just about hurry. The point of this book is how does hurry vie for our worship in places that it actually takes that away from allowing God to be the thing that we worship in our lives. This book is based around the person of Jesus. So today, just for today, if I can accomplish my goal, here's, here's all that we're going to do today. Um, I want to just scratch the surface on something that I think we're all deeply longing for. Today will just be the introduction. So know that we're going to hit some big ideas and we're going to see just the beginning of how God is starting to interact with this all. I, I hope at this point that you know I love the word and I love getting into scripture but to kick off today, it's just going to be a lot of questions and a lot of walking around this topic of hurrying, going, what does this have to do with my personal spiritual formation? Is this affecting my life? Uh, and this, this series is for the middle schooler in the room. It's for the empty nester in the room. I think this is a topic, this idea of hurry, that hits anyone who has a pulse and is breathing in the world of the 21st century. I think that, that what we're talking about it affects everyone. And th this book that uh, we'll have available in the lobby, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, was really based around this, this conversation. If you were here on Christmas, you probably heard this. This conversation had between Dallas Willard and one of his mentees named John Ortberg. And John asked Dallas, what must I do to be spiritually healthy? And, and Dallas said, paused for a while as he was apt to do. And then he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And Orberg wrote it down. He goes, okay, great. What's next? <laughs> and Willard goes, There's no, there is nothing else. If you're entering into 2023, asking yourself, maybe on purpose, maybe by accident, that question, what must I do to be spiritually healthy? Could this be a year where I actually level up, where things actually change in my life? It was fun at Christmas Eve sharing that story, sharing that story with many of you just over coffees, even hearing the knowing laughter today. There's something in that that right away you go, wisdom. There's a truth in that. And, and there's an invitation for us to know more. So if you're like me, you don't just feel this compulsion to hustle, but you feel it in the culture around you too. Like there's some form of madness that we're all trying to self-medicate from. And oftentimes it takes the form of this ruthless taskmaster screaming mush at the top of its lungs. Do you feel this magnetic pull towards more, towards efficiency, towards production? Amid many things, I long for rest. Not just sleep, like rest. You know what I mean? Like to be the type of person that is just at peace. Like the way that I work, the way that I relate, I'm present everywhere that I go, that I live each moment with a sense that I'm connected to the breath that I'm breathing and the people that I'm with and the ground that I stand on, that the word savor replaces the word busy more and more and more. And man, I would love <laughs> to be able to stand up here and say, you guys, I've, I've done it. I've mastered it. I know what to do. 
I'm also reading this book. <laughs> this, this is stuff, I think, in my, own, in my own walk, in my own life, in my own wiring. There's a real rub here for me. This is not simple. And so, no, this is not stuff that I'm going to be saying over the next few weeks that I'm like, it's simple. Go for it. Like, this will draw out hard things in every single one of us if you choose to engage it. It's ironic. Since that Senate hearing in the 1960s, since 1979, if you would go back and look at the stats on this, the average American is working four more weeks a year than they were working in the 60s. Four more. Four weeks. That's bonkers. How did it get this way? That's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, there's a futurist. Um, he passed away back in the 80s, but as he was looking at stuff, first off, his name is Buck, Buckminster Fuller, which if you're, look, if you're about to have a baby and you're like, well, it'd be a great name. How about Buckminster? There you go. You're welcome. Uh, but he wrote a book called The Critical Path, and in that, he had this idea that he called the doubling curve. And he was just going back, looking at a survey of human history, really just starting since the year zero, like right, right around Jesus' time. And he said this. He estimated that if you could measure the cumulative knowledge of human civilization from the year of Jesus' birth, it took 1,500 years for the cumulative knowledge of human civilization to double. But from there, it doubled by 1750, 250 years later. From there, it doubled every 100 years up until World War II. After the war, it doubled every 25 years, and by the 80s, it was doubling every 12 months. Some current estimates would say this is every 12 hours now. That's amazing. When you go back and think of like, how would that affect the pace of life? What were the things that were being passed down and how are they being passed down? Did life feel like this drink from the fire hose experience all the time, or was there a simplicity and a cadence that's, that's a, incredible. And, and that's just the cumulative knowledge of human civilization. I think that knowledge begins to put on display. What sort of speed do we have to run at just to keep up, just to exist in a world that, that, that's that, that way? You can read in this, this book about the invention of the light bulb, how that changed, changed things, that, about, about the idea of 7-Eleven, about the year 2007, and how that was a year that blew the doors off of human civilization. But Why? I think while we all, have, we, we all we have what we need to work only 22 hours a week for only 27 weeks a year, in the 1960s culture, they were looking at a lifestyle going, the technology is just creating space for us. The problem is that as they were plotting the trajectory of technology, they forgot to also plot the trajectory of human neurosis <laughs> alongside it. They didn't think that we would keep up with the technology but that the technology, we'd, we'd stay where we were. Why do you hurry? Why do I hurry? Why is the world in a hurry? Do you have an answer to that? That's another really good rhetorical question today. Why? There's a couple things that I came up with. I would love to know what other things I'm missing on my list, but when I think about why I hurry, here's the few that I came up with. Meaning. When I hurry, it, it means that I, I'm needed, that I have value, that I'm adding something to the world. Laziness is not an option because that means I'm not contributing and to fail is not an option. I hurry because it, it gives me some sense of purpose, of value. 
I hurry because of distraction. Hurry keeps me preoccupied. It puts a veneer over my own personal problems or the pain that I feel. It puts it over the world's problems and the world's pain. If I don't slow down, if I don't let the quiet creep in, I, I don't have to deal with it. Remember, I was talking with a high school friend um, about two years ago, and we were talking, he just felt this overwhelming anxiety, and we were working with this therapist and talking about what things could we do. And one of the things that we suggested was, can you just every day have 30 minutes in your room where you just sit in the quiet and put your phone, put your computer, put all this stuff away and, and just sit? And he's like, absolutely not. <laughs> there is no way I could sit in that much quiet. I would go insane. And I remember as an adult <laughs> looking at him going, yeah, that makes sense. That's like super messed up. And, and maybe you were just having that same thought yourself, 30 minutes by yourself with nothing to distract you. Who's scared right now? He is, I am, but distraction, it keeps me distracted. Why do I hurry? It provides. As long as I'm hurrying, I'm making money. My status in the world is, is at least holding at homeostasis. I have a house that I can live in. We live in a meritocracy in America. And it's just a fancy, pretentious way of saying if you work hard, you get stuff for it. You're, there's a merit that comes with how you live. And so the harder you work, the faster you run, the more you can do and produce and be, the more stuff that you get. And there's a comfort in that I'm provided for. It provides joy, kind of. We were actually designed to create. And albeit fabricated, this busy of scrolling through social media or binging shows is enjoyable. But the problem is that creation must have limits. The best example of something that creates and never stops is called cancer. If there is a constant receiving or giving of creativity, it actually becomes super destructive. Creativity must rest. And we live in a society that says never stop scrolling. We have apps that are engineered to hold our attention for as long as possible. Just as an anecdote, one of the things that CEO of Netflix, um, they were talking about the rise of Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and all these different things. And he was being interviewed and they said, what's the biggest uh, competitor to Netflix right now? And he said, frankly, if I answer honestly, it's sleep. If we could just keep people from sleeping, we're not worried about it. Like, that's our biggest enemy. The average user watches Netf a Netflix series, a whole series in five days, not a season, a series in five days. Is that something that we do because when we're done, we feel so fulfilled? <laughs> no. Uh, do you remember that show hole commercial that they used to have? You just fallen into a show hole. Love that. Why do I hurry? Self-reliance. My hurry gives me a sense of God-likeness, if I'm honest about it. I have no limits. I can do it all. I can be all things to all people. I can keep going, keep running. I will be the best. I can fix it is a phrase that replaces I'll stop and pray. Because one of the worst vices in our world today is to be dependent. So those are some of mine. What would be some things that you would add to the list? Why do you hurry? And maybe one other question. How do you know if like hurry is becoming a problem for you? Uh, Rosemary Sword and Philip Zimbaro wrote a book called The Time Cure and they just had three simple things that they suggested in their book. They said, hey, hurry might have its claws deeply into you if you've ever moved from one checkout line of the store to another because it looked faster. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know that laughter. I know that laughter. Hurry might be a problem if you've ever started counting cars in front of you at stoplights and then changed lanes to get into the faster one. I know. I know your laughter. And I also know that laughter like, <laughs> crap. <laughs> Hurry might be an issue if multitasking happens in your life to the point that you just start forgetting tasks. <laughs> crap. That, I, that, that's their diagnosis. Uh, from this book that we'll have, if you want to read it, you totally can. There's just, he, he has a list of 10 things that he points out. I, I wanted to share, and I wanted to put the words up on the screen because I want you to see the wisdom, but I, I, for especially the visual learners in the room that need to see it, I just wanted you to be able to follow along. Here's three of his 10. Restlessness. When you actually try to slow down and rest and you can't relax, you give Sabbath a try, but you hate it. You read scripture, but you find it boring. You have a quiet time with God, but you can't focus your mind. You go to bed early, but you toss and turn with your anxiety. You watch TV, but simultaneously check your phone, fold laundry, answer an email. Your mind and your body are hyped up on the drug of speed, and when they don't get the next dopamine fix, they shiver. Uh, oh. How about this one? Escapist behaviors. When we're too tired to do what's actually life-giving for our souls, we each turn to our distraction of choice. Overeating, over-drinking, binge-watching Netflix, browsing social media, surfing the web, looking at porn. Name your preferred cultural narcotic. Narcotics are good, even healthy. On occasion and short-term bases, they will shield us from unnecessary pain, but when we abuse them to escape reality, they eat us alive. Do you have an escapist behavior of choice? Here's a third one. And this, this is a, as a, in my line of work, um, and, and as a father of kids that are growing up in the world of today, this is the one that terrifies me the most. Isolation. You feel disconnected from God, from others, and from your own soul. On those rare times when you actually stop to pray, and by pray I don't mean ask God for stuff, I mean sit with God in quiet, you're so stressed and distracted that your mind can't settle down long enough to enjoy the Father's company. Same thing with your friends. When you're with them, you're also with your phone or a million miles away in your mind, running down a to-do list. And even when you're alone, you come face to face with the void that is in your soul and immediately run back to the familiar groove of busyness and digital distraction. Am I flicking a nerve? And I just want you to know, I, it's in me too. <laughs> and I, I think it's because this is the world that we live in. This kind of lifestyle, this, this hurry, this hustle that we feel, it's like the water that a fish swims in. To describe it or to point out that it's there, unless somebody makes it really clear and points at it, it's just how we do. <laughs> it's how we live. We're all this way. Christian or non-Christian does not matter. Welcome to the American Idol. So how do we do this? <laughs> What, what are we supposed to do when you start smelling those smelling salts and waking up going, this is a terrible way to live. As a dad, I'm watching my kids grow up in this world going, I don't want this for you. I, I, don't, I don't want you to have to grow up with this corporate anxiety that we all feel. But what's the better way? How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to teach my kids and my friends and my family? How, how are we supposed to do this? And again, it doesn't matter if you're in elementary school or high school or college or if you're in your 80s. This is something that is a systemic issue 
that when we all start going one direction, it's like a herd of sheep. But I also think because we know it's so unhealthy and so messed up that it only takes a couple people to say, I'm gonna go a different direction. And the way that they choose to live and the things that they choose to do and how they choose to relate to God and to each other is just so inviting and enamoring that it starts to turn heads. And if that type of a story sounds familiar, it's because of the story of Jesus. He said, hey, everybody seems to be going this way. I have a different way for you, and it's beautiful. Do you want to live a beautiful and good and true life? Follow me. Paul, in the book of Corinthians, has this brilliant moment, that, and he's helping this young church in Corinth, which is in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, he's helping them think through, how do you follow Jesus? And our text today is going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. So if you brought your Bibles, you can turn there. But there's some things you need to know before we just jump in, because this is a really weird passage of Scripture that we're going to read. Here's what you need to know. Corinth is a Roman province. And so if you were going to be a Christian living in Corinth, most likely you were Roman or you knew for sure you were living in the Roman Empire. And to live in the Roman Empire at this time meant that every place that you went and everything that you did, there was an idol that was very clearly right in your face all the time. Idol worship was a part of the Roman Empire. The, the Greek pantheon was alive and well. So much so that in the marketplace, if you would go to buy meat, all of the meat that was in that marketplace had been sacrificed already to an idol and it was now for sale. So if you wanted to go to the grocery store and buy some ham, that ham had already been sacrificed to another idol. That's, that's a little different than King Supers today, but it's interesting. The other thing too is that you couldn't um, associate with other people. Like there were guilds at this point in time. So if you had a job, you were part of a guild. And everybody who was a part of your guild, everybody, all the pastors would get out and hang out together. All the plumbers would get out and hang out together. All the business entrepreneurs, everybody had these guilds. And you'd go party together often. And by party, I mean you'd hang out. It's networking. It's, it's the chamber of commerce. This is how life happened and how things got done. But the problem is that it was the most simple, common, like, go with the flow. This is what our culture does thing. That at every single one of those gatherings, you worship whoever the God was of the guild that you were attached to. That was just normal. This was a day and age pre the television and pre iPhones. And so entertainment was largely a relational thing. And usually like parades coming through town or big parties thrown at other people's houses just for fun. Th those were normal and common. But the thing was that every single one of those, there was an idol and people, we'd be worshiping idols. That's just what we do. And so I want you to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's heard about this man, Jesus, and that he has this better way. And all of a sudden you're starting to go, I, I want to follow Jesus. And you might have heard, there might be some Jewish folks in town, they filled you in a little bit on the story of like, how did things get this way? Who is this Jesus? Where does he come from? What's the God that he's representing? And they would for sure have told you stories from their own past. The Old Testament is littered with stories of God telling the Jewish people, do not bow down to idols, and they do it, and it goes terribly wrong. That's a tradition that you've grown up in. And so now, as a Corinthian, growing up in the Roman Empire, you're wondering, okay, what am I supposed to do? Everywhere I go, everything I see, the culture has a flow, and that flow is idol worship. How am I supposed to live? And then Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, and we're going to skip around just a little bit. Therefore, my friends, flee from the worship of idols. 
I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then I'll jump down to verse 18. Consider the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That food sacrifice to idols is anything? Or that the idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, communion, and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Super obscure passage. And as you read the context of what he's writing, essentially what Paul just said is, look, you can eat the brisket. The brisket has no power. But what's going on in you? I mean, there, there's two things to consider when, if you want to eat meat as a Corinthian Christian. The first thing is this. Does eating the brisket, does it help? Does it affect your ability to worship God alone? What's the heart and the mindset you're eating with? Does it cause you to think about your old life or a life that doesn't follow God? Do you feel like it splits your allegiance? If that's the case, don't eat the brisket. The second thing to consider as he writes this, does it affect the people around you to experience God alone? He says that if you're with people who believe that you're eating the brisket out of worship to idols, make it clear, don't eat it for their sake. And you're, if you're with people who just aren't sure and they're worried, maybe younger Christians who are watching you going, is this okay? Do we worship idols and God? Make it clear, no. So in the end, he's saying, you can eat the brisket. The brisket is not the problem. The problem is your heart. And I love how he starts out these verses. I'm, I'm talking, I'm speaking with sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. There's not some universal imperative that he says of just never eat meat, nobody eat meat, meat's bad now, everybody's vegan. <laughs> Thank God, I'm so happy. Vegans, you're amazing. But he is saying, you have to be paying attention to what it is that you're worshiping in every situation you walk into. And I, I think it's funny because this is a cultural norm. You would go with the flow of what's being worshiped, if, even if that meant if it was something other than the God of Scripture. And Paul is saying, wake up. What are you worshiping? And if it's not God alone, you have some questions to ask. Paul is tearing off the band-aid of this issue and asking them to thoughtfully choose. The go-with-the-flow world of our world today isn't idol worship. Or is it? The American idol of our time is hurry, and it's busy, and it's making us sick, and it has made us sick, and it's not slowing down, and it also presents an invitation to us. Will you be a people of the book? Will you be a people who do not stop at anything but the singular worship of God alone? Will you obey a God who says that he knows what life is and what joy is and what freedom is and what liberty is and what being rooted and present and savoring is? So what's your relationship to hurry? Does it interfere with your relationship with God? Does it affect his ability to use you in the world around you? Does it vie for the crown of the kingship of your life? One of the problems is that so many of us who claim to follow Jesus um, are actually not willing to stop sacrificing to this idol. 
And so we not only miss out on the gift for ourselves, but we miss out on sharing it with the world around that needs it so badly. So what does God offer? He offers an invitation and a choice. As we engage God, there's not an invitation of hurry. Hurry actually offends what he's all about. You can't hurry in love. You can't hurry up a relationship. You can't hurry up trying to be present in a particular place. The Japanese theologian Kasuke Kiyama said it this way, love has a speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed that we're accustomed. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice or not, at three miles an hour. That is the speed that we walk, and therefore the speed the love of God walks. In context, in this part of the book, he's talking about how Jesus just walked everywhere, and that the disciples, his students, would just, they walked at three miles an hour. It takes me 12 minutes to drive from my house to Discovery Church. And last night I was wondering, like, how long would it take me if, if I went three miles an hour, driving or walking? Do you know how long it takes? Like, it's simple math. It's over an hour and a half. How much different do you suspect my life would be if I left my home an hour and a half before I got to work every day just to enjoy every step of a 90-minute walk with God, savoring the world around? And what is your suspicion of how hard I have to wrestle with actually doing something like that? I'm gonna invite the band out. But I have some invitations for us as we engage. Again, today was just scratching the surface. It's, it's poking the nerve. It's asking you to consider these things for yourself. There is so much that we're gonna explore over this six-week series in this book. So the first invitation is this. We could all just become Amish if you want to. If we get a unanimous vote, we'll just do it. Although I would just remind us, it's tempting. But Jesus gave us a missional heart Jesus implored his followers, be in the world, be with people. Do not seed off and form some sort of holy huddle. That's not what I've called you to. So I would humbly like to be the one vote that says, let's not do that. You might be with me. The second invitation is this. Keep coming back on Sundays. If today hit anything in you, no, I fully believe the next several weeks as we hit these different topics, different practices, that there will be things that you go, that, that, that's amazing. It just changes how I live. The next thing would be this. Um, this is the book. Um, it's by a guy named John Mark Comer. He's been a pastor at a couple different churches along the West Coast. Brilliant book. Um, it's actually, he's plagiarizing. Uh, his, his mentor, John Ortberg, wrote a book called The Me I Want to Be. His mentor, Dallas Willard, wrote a book called The Renovation of the Heart. He stole a whole bunch of stuff from Ignatius of Loyola, who actually, they all plagiarized it from this guy named Jesus, who's actually really good. Um, but if you're like, I'm, I'm interested. I would love as we go through this series, I'd love to just follow along. Um, you can grab these. There. We've got a handful of copies out in the lobby. They're 20 bucks. Um, and also in each one of these, there's a bookmark that will just kind of walk you through, here's how to read and follow along with the sermon series if you want to do that. So if you want to do that, you can. Um, the third thing, if you want to, is come to Sundays, read the book, don't be Amish, uh, and, then, and then there's a workbook that Comer put out when he produced this book. If you want to do that workbook, the point of that workbook by the end is really helping you nail down, how do I now want to live? And it's brilliant. And then finally, with all that, to, to do that in community, I mean, if you want to go for extra credit, if you're in a life group, maybe consider doing this with your life group. Maybe just consider grabbing a best friend and saying, do you want to do this together? Let's grab coffee once a week or every other week, and let's, like, let's really engage it and just see what comes up.
If you do this in your marriage, holy smokes, you're playing with fire. This could, this could be really cool. It could also be really hard. I'm just, that's marriage. Um, and finally, uh, I do, I just want to be unapologetic. I think this could change your life. Uh, if you've begun the year 2023 hoping for a year of spiritual renewal and excitement, dive deep in this. There's a reason why we're kicking off our sermon calendar this year with this idea. And as a closing thought, to not do this work now will likely lead you exactly where you would expect it to. And the next set of the 60s, the 2060s, will likely prove to be even faster and even more hurried and even more soulless. Don't eat the brisket. Swim against the current now and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. The invitation will stay open until you take it or life will always feel this way. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray for myself just as much as I pray for our church family. Help us to be a people who are willing to look this idol in the face. Help us to willingly try to understand why we are so drawn to it. Help us to have the courage and the creativity to change how we live as we model our lives after your life. And Jesus, help us to look both through the past and the future of how we can faithfully walk in obedience towards you and the unhurried life of worship that you offer. Give us courage. Amen.